Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today we are back with another installment of our ongoing monthly podcast series with UBS Asset Management, House Call, a monthly update on the House View equity portfolios, including Dividend Ruler, QGARP, Opportunistic Equity Income, Mid-Cap, and Large-Cap Core, all very popular offerings with our UBS client base. We'll also hear some insights into the equity markets as well. So glad to welcome back for the conversation Jeremy Zirin, head of the private client U.S. equity team, as well as Dominique Shager, UBS Asset Management's Senior Equity Investment Specialist. So with that, Dom, I know you will be moderating today's conversation with Jeremy. I will pass it over to you. Welcome back. Thank you, Dan. As always, I appreciate you having us on the show. So, Jeremy, let's get started. Over the last few weeks, investors' focus has been placed on Washington's debt ceiling negotiations. As we quickly approach Secretary Yellen's June 1st deadline, what are your expectations? Do you think we'll reach an agreement soon? Yeah, hopefully these comments will be dated pretty shortly. Uh, you know, I would say first and foremost, I do think that the risk of an actual default on U.S. Tre- Treasury obligations is extremely low. You know, we've raised the debt limit 78 times since 1960, and many of the more recent, you know, debt ceiling debates have come down to the wire. So while, you know, time is running out, uh, a compromise agreement by the, you know, early June X date is still more likely than not. I would say that some, in some ways, it's actually not all that surprising that negotiations are coming down to the wire. You know, in terms of you know incentives, both Democrats and Republicans do appear to have strong incentives here to drag out talks to make a deal appear more difficult to demonstrate to their respective constituents that they negotiated for the the best possible outcome. Um, so sadly, I think what we're seeing right now is a lot of political gamesmanship more than anything else. Uh, so ultimately, our base case is that compromises will be made and Congress ends up raising the debt ceiling with Democrats conceding to you know, some spending caps and Republicans agreeing to raise the debt limit likely beyond the 2024 general election. I think it's also important to point out that you know, in the unlikely scenario that if I'm wrong, <laughs> that Congress doesn't pass legislation to raise the debt ceiling by the X state, uh, an actual U.S. government bond default is still somewhat unlikely. You know, since Treasury at that point could, you know, prioritize the, you know, coupon and principal payments on government debt over other spending obligations and categories. But one thing is clear, you know, I think that until we get a deal, you know, market volatility is likely to remain high and increase if investors believe there's even a small chance, you know, that we pass the X date without a deal. And then maybe just one last point on this is that, that I, that I actually don't think is getting a lot of attention is that markets may not get the all clear thing even after a deal is reached. And, and I could see, you know, that under three different scenarios. One is that if an extension isn't very long, right? So if we see, a, you know, Congress kick the can and raises that ceiling for two weeks or, you know, even two to three months, uh, and we're back at this, uh, in, in a very short period of time, you know, markets will likely, you know, either negatively or just, uh, you know, really still have uh, concerns. You know, two, I would say that you know, if you just think back to the, you know, the episode that occurred in 2011, you know, the S&P 500 actually fell almost 15% in the two weeks after the debt ceiling was raised, and that was prompted by you know the S&P 500 or S&P uh, downgrading the creditworthiness of the you know government debt from down a notch from from AAA, and then you know 
part of the negotiations here now are to raise the debt ceiling in exchange for spending caps. So, you know, keep in mind that, you know, last year, 25% of U.S. GDP was from government spending. And so, you know, limiting government spending at a time when we are likely to face a fairly low growth environment because of monetary tightening, which I'm sure we're going to get into, uh, it's likely going to have some fiscal drag over the next couple of years, which is, you know, just going to stunt growth further. So, so bottom lining it, you know, hopefully and most likely we get a deal and avoid any type of, you know, financial market calamity. But that doesn't necessarily mean equity markets won't face, you know, some headwinds after a deal is done. Thank you, Jeremy. So it's nice to put it in perspective. Um, another topic that I think is on top of investors' minds is what is the Federal Reserve's next move? For the latest CPI report, inflation remains um, stubbornly sticky. April CPI print came in at 4.9% um, year over year. That's higher than the Fed's long-term target of 2%. What are your thoughts on the Fed's move? Will we have another interest rate hike or is there a pause, a pivot? Yeah, I think that, you know, investors seem to be very, you know, short-term oriented recently and I really seem to be, you know, living Fed meeting to Fed meeting. I think that if you look at the current market pricing, there's about a one in three chance of a hike in June. So it does look like there's a, a better chance that the Fed, you know, pauses next month, uh, or that they actually could be done raising rates in this, raising rates in this cycle. I think the key issue though isn't necessarily will the Fed you know, hike in June or will they pause? But really, how long will the federal funds rate currently at, you know, 5% stay in restrictive territory? Or said differently, you know, how long will borrowing rates be this expensive for consumers, which, you know, finance things like buying a car or buying a home, or for businesses looking, you know, for a loan to start a new business or to expand their, their current business? And so the risk, you know, remains that rates may be higher for longer, and I'm, I'm in that camp. Uh, inflation is more likely to be sticky, in my view, at levels above the Fed's 2% inflation target. And as you mentioned, Dom, you know, CPI is currently 4.9%, and if you strip out food and energy uh, and, and look at core inflation, uh, it's actually even higher than that. It's at 5.5%. So while that's better than the 9% headline CPI print that we saw last summer, and we're seeing some evidence of, of disinflation, it's still way above the 2% target by the Federal Reserve for, for core inflation. And so my feeling is that there are you know, some structural reasons, in fact, three structural reasons why it's going to be more difficult for the Federal Reserve to achieve uh, getting their goal of getting uh, inflation back to uh, the 2% target. Uh, one is that energy markets are structurally tight and oil prices are likely to remain fairly elevated for some time. And as global producers have underinvested in new capacity over the last several years, you know, two is that deglobalization and reshoring has led to less efficient investment spending, which puts upward pressure on, on final prices. And then lastly, you know, due to aging demographics, we have a worker shortage in this country and that's leading to wage inflation. So, you know, bottom lining it in, in, in the inflation debate is that regardless of whether the Fed moves in June to, you know, 25 basis points or if they pause their hiking cycle, there's a, a pretty high probability that rates are going to have to stay higher for longer to get inflation down to 2%. And, you know, that tight monetary policy means that growth is likely to be fairly subdued and below trend potentially for quite some time. 
So I'm sure all of this did have an impact on earnings. And now that we're winding down for first quarter um, earnings season, can you maybe give us some takeaways? Yeah, let's say there were both positives and negatives coming out of you know, first quarter earnings season. Uh, overall earnings for the S&P 500 were down 2%, and consensus calls for a 6% drop in the second quarter, and that would mark the third consecutive quarter of year-over-year declines in S&P 500 earnings. So, so that's the bad news. You know, the, the good news is that you know expectations were so low that even though earnings fell 2% in the quarter, uh, they actually beat consensus by the widest margin since the first quarter of the, of 2022 and full year 23 estimates, uh, which had fallen from about $250 per share last summer to as low as $219 before earnings even started, uh, have, have largely stabilized around that $220 figure. So the full bottom up number for this year now stands at 220 or, or basically flat with uh, last year's earnings. And I would say another sort of positive would be that all those, you know, or that sales were up 4% year on year. So the earnings decline that we saw was really driven by higher costs and shrinking profit margins rather than by falling sales. Uh, some takeaways sort of underneath the surface that I think are interesting and, and important uh, is that we generally saw stronger than expected results in, you know, some of the mega cap tech companies, which I would classify as, you know, less bad than feared considering that tech earnings Overall, <clears throat> still, excuse me, tech earnings overall still fell about 10% year on year, you know, weighed down by weak results in the more cyclical semiconductor industry. Uh, earnings for industrials were up a solid 20%. And then maybe on the less optimistic side, you know, the consumer still showed signs of stress. So consumer discretionary sector sales were up 10%, but most of the commentary from retailers and other consumer-oriented companies was centered around a weakening trend. So consumers were still spending, but becoming more cautious and either deferring larger ticket purchases or trading down to cheaper goods. You know, we heard this from companies like Home Depot, uh, where big ticket comparable transactions of, of those over $1,000 were down 6.5% compared to Q1 of last year. And even, you know, a discount megastore like Walmart noted that, you know, lower income consumers were being pinched and they saw them trading down and one of the examples they used is they saw consumers trade from, you know, fresh to cheaper frozen goods, uh, frozen foods uh, within, within, within that category. And so overall, earnings are, you know, soft and likely to remain generally weak to slightly negative in the second quarter at a market level. And consensus estimates expects, you know, earnings to improve starting in the third quarter of this year and then to grow close to 10% in the fourth quarter and 10% again for full year 2024, I'm a big skeptical and think that forward-looking estimates likely need to come down a bit more to uh, to more realistic levels. So given this macro environment we just discussed, for an equity investor, how um, should it be positioned in this type of environment? And are you finding opportunities? So yes, but it's a challenging environment in, in many aspects. I would say first, we have the political noise around the debt ceiling, which we talked about. And we all hope that there's a short-term issue, but obviously this could have some you know, very negative consequences and, or uh, asymmetric downside risks, as we like to say in the biz. Uh, but more structurally, we're likely just going to be in this fairly, you know, low and decelerating growth environment over the next few quarters, considering the, the goal of the Federal Reserve's 500 basis point interest rate hiking cycle over the past year 
has been to dampen economic growth, cool off the labor market, and bring down inflation. And so while a soft landing is possible, history isn't necessarily on the Fed side here with you know, most leading indicators like the ISM Manufacturing Index, the Conference Board's LEI, leading economic indicators, or the Senior Loan Officer's Opinion Survey, all flashing yellow or red, meaning that all are near or at levels that have historically been consistent with, you know, an economic downturn. And so given the fact that, you know, there's an uncomfortably high chance that the economy may enter a recession over the next six to 12 months, coupled with the fact that equity markets are not trading at valuations that are above average, uh, the overall risk reward for the equity market here looks, you know, I would say fairly unattractive over the next six to 12 months. It doesn't mean that we're going to have some type of, you know, significant drawdown, but risk reward here seems to be more limited with a soft landing scenario largely priced in and a hard landing scenario could lead to uh, a further drawdown in equities. And so in terms of, you know, positioning and opportunities, um, I would say from a positioning standpoint, you know, we're, we remain defensively positioned favoring sectors and industries that are less exposed to the cyclical areas of the economy and therefore have less earnings risk should we go into a downturn. The sectors that we lean into are healthcare, consumer staples, utilities, and some of the more, you know, stable areas within the industrial and consumer sectors. In terms of the best opportunities in the equity market, I would put them into a couple different buckets. You know, first, I would say high-quality companies. So those with strong balance sheets, experienced management teams that have navigated choppy waters before, and companies with strong growth drivers that are less dependent on the economic cycle for growth uh, look attractive here. And what you find over history is that quality as a factor has generally outperformed during the latter stages of an economic cycle and in the early stages of economic downturns, which is where we think we are in the broader, you know, economic and market cycle. And then, you know, additionally, I would say I do still see opportunities for, for investors in stocks that can benefit from normalizing industry trends in a post-pandemic world. And so what I mean by that is, you know, with global mobility improving and the pandemic largely in the rearview mirror, you know, areas like medical technology companies, which were hurt over the past few years from deferred medical procedure volumes and labor shortages in hospitals are just starting to see better, you know, uh, procedure volumes and end demand uh, over the last couple of quarters. You know, similarly, you know, commercial aerospace, other areas that have really saw, you know, their businesses meaningfully impacted during 2020 to 2021 and 22 are now seeing business improve, normalization of broad end market demand. And those are the areas that I still think that there's, you know, greater opportunities in as we look forward over the next couple of years. Thanks, Jeremy. So specifically to the house view equity portfolios, can you maybe touch on that, highlight a few recent changes? Sure. So, you know, maybe just about, you know, not surprisingly, our positioning is has been, is and has been fairly cautious given the views that I just described. It generally results in us lowering beta in our portfolio and bolstering the, the quality bias that is both structural and intentional currently in the current market environment. Um, I would say that, you know, uh, maybe just to have a quick word on a couple of the more high-profile and, and controversial sectors lately, technology and energy. 
you know, in technology, you know, well, let, let's just take them together for a second. These sectors have been highly inversely correlated over the past few years. And 2022 and 2023 were no exception, right? Last year, energy was up 60% uh, when the market was down almost 20 and tech was down about 30%. And this year, we've seen a reverse of that with tech leading the market higher and energy lagging. Now, I'm of the view and what's embedded in our portfolios is that tech valuations have become fairly extended here, and we're generally underweight tech relative to their very large benchmark weights. And with energy, it, while it's lagged this year, I still see, see opportunities there. I think things could be rocky in the near term if we go into a recession, for sure, um, if investors start to worry more about demand. But more structurally, I, I think we'll still see that capital discipline from U.S. shale producers hold which limits industry oversupply and should keep oil prices, you know, higher than otherwise throughout the, uh, the, the cycle. And so, you know, broadly, that's how we're positioned from a uh, you know, sector and factor perspective. Thank you, Jeremy, for all your insights. And hopefully we get some good news from Washington on compromise. Um, a new word for them sometimes, I feel like. But with that, Dan, that's a wrap from us. Thank you for having us on the show. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.